Hello and welcome to this episode of The Psychology of Almost Everything. My name is Peter Thompson. And my name is Stuart Grant. In this episode, we're going to be talking about some of the psychological aspects of acting. It's now time to introduce uh, this month's guest, the actor Michael Simpkins. Michael has appeared in more than 100 plays and musicals from the National Theatre of the RSC to the Fringe and the West End. His last role was in the hilarious Unfriend with Reese Shearsmith and Francis Barber at the Criterion. Hello, Michael. Hello. Lovely to be here. Uh, Michael, I've just read your book, The Rules of Acting. It's marvellously entertaining and engaging, and I think probably should be compulsory reading for anyone who wants to become an actor. <laughs> I'd also recommend it to anyone uh, who's interested in, in theatre. It really is a great read. Yeah, thanks. It was, uh, it was just my attempt to try and distill the, the mechanics of the... <laughs> The uh, glittering cesspit that is the acting profession, really. <laughs> um, as you know, Michael, this podcast likes to get to the psychological side of things. So we're going to ask you a few questions about being an actor. And where we can, we might make some parallels with our, our own profession as, uh, as clinical psychologists and psychotherapists. But let's, uh, let's kick off by asking you... Um, when, you, when you've been given a part, when you've been cast, as it were, how do you go about preparing for that role? Well, the fact is that there are as many ways of preparing for a role as there are actors. And uh, every actor that comes into the rehearsal room has a very different approach. Uh, some will have researched extensively and immersed themselves in the world of the play for which you're asking them to do. Some people will have done no work at all and prefer to just let something percolate up through the rehearsal period, which is often a process which actors are unaware of ourselves as to how it happens. It's a very intangible, mercurial process, The the that way of finding, uh, of, of being offered a part and then standing it up on its feet. And... Um, a lot of actors are very reluctant to talk about it, almost as if it, if we talk about it or if we let it into the light, it will evaporate and we won't be able to do it anymore. Um, so, I mean, I would imagine a bit like your job, you know, when somebody comes in through the door, you have to immediately make the decision as to how best to try and unlock what they've come in to talk about and I'm sure that you know mm -hmm. some people some people need a lot of cajoling some people need a firm hand some people need silence um, it's a bit like that in the acting game you receive a part and and as I say some actors will take a very very meticulous detailed approach to working out what they want to do some people even come into the rehearsal room on day one with the performance virtually uh, intact I mean you know they've sort of done it before they've even turned up whereas other actors are still struggling to learn the lines four nights before the opening night. Um, and the director's job, which is what makes it so fiendishly tricky, is to try and combine these very disparate approaches from a, a group of you know, 10, 15, 20 actors into something whereby when the curtain rises on the first night, everybody's moving at the same speed and hopefully in the same direction. <laughs> Let's take the most recent role you're... We're in, uh, Michael, with The Unfriend. I mean, how did you get into that role? Well, the role was, uh, it was a very peculiar role. I know you saw it, Peter, because we had a drink afterwards. And um, uh, the, 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 the play was A Dark Fast by Stephen Moffat, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Who, um, a very celebrated writer. It was his first stage play. And uh, he had offered me the role of this 
deadly dull neighbour who's in fact known in the cast list as the neighbour and that's because nobody can ever remember his name. I decided it was Derek, but that, that, I know. Uh, <laughs> I, I, with I, apologies I, to all the Derek's. With all the Derek's, yeah. <laughs> and um, and um, uh, some of my best friends are called Derek. <laughs> and, uh, but um, the, 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 the whole point of this particular part, which, you know, as I said, was in a, a, a dark farce, uh, was that this neighbour came in at various, uh, very inopportune moments in this sort of family's private calamity who lived next door to him, and all he wants to talk about is party wall agreements. And he's ineffably <laughs> cheery, and uh, he's completely impervious to any hints that perhaps he might like to sling his hook because they've got problems in their own house. Um, uh, he's virtually bomb-proof. And... Um, so therefore, uh, there wasn't very much to go on. And when I sat down at the read-through with the other actors, who I'd only just met 20 minutes before when we all arrived to start this project and went round the table and introduced ourselves, uh, many of the actors I didn't even know, uh, when we came to read out the play for the first time, which is customarily what you do when you sit and uh, start to rehearse a play, you usually start with a read-through. I wasn't quite sure what was going to come out of my mouth, whether I was going to uh, <laughs> say it in my the, the accent which I normally use to speak, or whether something else was going to come out, perhaps something a bit more estuary, or something perhaps a bit more um, countrified. Anyway, this voice emerged, and I thought, oh, this sounds all right. I don't know why I've made that choice. I literally didn't know why <laughs> I made the choice to do the initial read-through, in, but nevertheless. So I, I did that. They seemed very happy with it. I worked on that. Um, decisions came to me during the rehearsal period. I often wasn't sure why I took a particular decision to say a line in a particular way. It was only at the end of the job this is nearly a year later when Stephen wrote to me after Curtain Down on the last night and said, just to say, Michael, I didn't have a chance to say goodbye to you after the uh, post-show drinks on the last night, but thank you very much. You know, loved your neighbour and it was marvellous. And I said to him, and it only came to me as I was replying to his very kind email, I said, I think you have to thank a chap called Stan Maunders, Stephen. <laughs> I said, I wasn't aware of it during the rehearsal period, but the fact is that Stan Maunders was a customer in my parents' sweet shop in Brighton in the 1960s. He'd come every Sunday morning, always dressed in his trademark greasy cap and um, uh, gardening uh, jacket and um, gum boots. And uh, he'd park his ass next to the ice cream fridge in my parents' sweet shop. And he would stay there for an hour. And all, he was always incredibly cheery. Uh, he would never leave. Um, he was deadly dull. And um, <laughs> my parents sometimes couldn't even face uh, having to deal with him. And he was impervious to threats or entreaties or hints like, I'm, you know, I'm so sorry, Stan, uh, we've got to shut the shop now because our house is on fire. Um, <laughs> he would just continue his merry way talking about his allotment or his caravan ho holidays. Um, uh, uh, he was actually a lovely guy, you know, that was the point. He was not an unbe he was a lovely man, but he was just absolutely impervious to the environment around him. And at 11 sharp, every Sunday morning, he'd, he'd always leave the shop with his trademark, well, cheery bye, and he'd leave, and that would be it until the next Sunday morning. And I realised only after the job finished that actually Stan Maunders 
had been the person that I'd obviously had in my subconscious mm -hmm. when I started rehearsing this part. And rather sweetly, when I explained this to Stephen in an email and said, you have this man called Stan Maunders to thank for my deep past 55 years ago because I realised that was the neighbour, <laughs> Stephen very sweetly got back and said, Stan Maunders. He said, that's exactly what Charles Dickens would have called him if he'd written the character. <laughs> Absolutely. So there you, you had a model. In your mind of that high Well, actually, I didn't have a model in my mind. I had a model in my subconscious. Uh -huh. Yes, yes. That's so the you point only wear it afterwards. That's the point that's I'm trying really, to make. That's really interesting. So, yeah. so but when, okay, but with or without your conscious thinking, you had a model. I did. Um, what about when you don't have a model? Well, then it's 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 obviously more difficult, and and that becomes that that thing that you've just touched on, Peter, comes more into play when you are doing a, a play or indeed a film part or a TV part, uh, where the uh, environment of the film or the story is perhaps something that you have no experience of or mm. no knowledge mm. of. Um, I mean, to take a ludicrous example, it's just come into my head. You know, what would happen if, for instance, I had to appear in a play which was based around sumo wrestling mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it, it's unlikely to happen but let's just take that as an example you don't quite have the build <laughs> I, I don't quite have the build and until recently when i when i've i've got into sumo funnily enough i quite i, I find it rather fascinating but it's a sort of cultural thing i watch it every six weeks on japanese television when the the next tournament comes around but that's Perhaps something I should have some therapy about with you after the, this edition. But, um, I mean, I'm just taking that as an example. But, you know, what happens if, for instance, I was asked to play a trainer training somebody in Japanese sumo, uh, mm. which is a, not only a highly stylized and very odd um, uh, 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 scenario, but it's also, you know, completely based in a foreign culture which I don't have much understanding of. Let's just take that as an example. Well, there... Um, you know, you there, I would very quickly realise that, that as a white British actor who's grown up playing, you know, largely white British parts, sometimes foreign, but, you know, very much it's something that I would have normally something to call upon, either in my conscious experience or my subconscious uh, treasure trove of memories and experiences, like with Stan Maunders. But with something like... Um, uh, a part like I've described then I would have to do a lot of research and mm -hmm. you know you cannot just turn up and wing it and hope that somehow you can find something because there isn't anything so for something that where you are playing uh, a part outside your life experience then mm -hmm. I think you have to do the work and hopefully if you do the work of a lot of reading a lot of research um, perhaps a lot of trawling the internet, you know, because obviously the visual image is also very important with that. Anything you can get about what the people look like, how they behaved, that also helps. And then hopefully that will trigger some something in your uh, story of personal life experience, which makes the fragile but essential connection. This is so interesting because I think our job as psychologists, when somebody walks in the door and they're coming with complaints or some kind of pain, it's a research project for me because at first I've got to find out what is going on for this person, sure, what is their sure. experience. Yeah. And I have to listen very carefully to that before I say anything or do anything. I have to listen and, and as we do the research by asking questions too. Yeah. Can, I, can I ask, well, let me ask you a follow on from that, that what you've just explained to us. 
What about if you're asked to play a part, which it is impossible to research, like say a, a Martian in Star Trek or something? What's the starting point for that? Well, uh, <clears throat> I think if you're playing something, and of course there's a lot of that sort of work about now, you know, with a uh, with a lot of these sort of sci-fi blockbusters, um, there is a lot of a lot of parts available for men of my age where you have to go to a big studio in the home counties and stand around wearing a cape and holding a staff and talking <laughs> about the triords of invaded the kingdom of, you know, whatever. Um, so there is a lot of that stuff. Well, there again, of course, the one advantage you've got there is that nobody else knows the world either. Exactly. So to an extent, you can uh, you, you can sort of create your own um, your own uh, truth um, th that that is possible. I've got I've got a bit of an example of that. It's not perhaps quite what you're talking about, but it sort of illustrates something. I was in uh, Mike Lee's film Topsy Turvy years oh, ago, wonderful, wonderful. which is based on um, uh, well, not based on. It's a very faithful replica of uh, what it was like to be in the Dorley Cart Opera Company yeah. in the heyday of Gilbert Gilbert and Sullivan at their height in the 1880s, and. Um, we had to do a huge amount of research for that. I mean, all of us. That was that was explained to Mike Lee when he interviewed me or us. Um, that um, he was expecting us all to not only do a great deal of research on the period and the operas and all that, um, because he wanted our performances to really faithfully replicate what it was like to be in that environment. But you love that anyway. Well, I, I, I was a unique example because I loved it anyway, but most of the, most of the cast didn't know anything about GNS, you know. Mm -hmm. It just so happened that, that it's something that I, I grew up with. So I was, you know, really happy to do all that. And I had to do you know, a lot less, less research than some of the lead actors who didn't really know much about it. Um, but interestingly, it just so happened that the, the, the individual I was playing, who was a member of the, the opera company who was, uh, which Gilbert and Sullivan employed, a chap called Frederick Beauville. Um, it so happened that uniquely among the, the members of the opera company of that period, all of whose lives have been documented and written about, you know, albeit by geeks and experts and people who are really into Gilbert and Sullivan, this guy Beauville, there's nothing known about him. And and it gave me a real problem because all the other actors around me, you know, were, they had a wealth of material to call upon who the who these individuals were, where they lived, who they were married to, how they died, you know, letters from them in many cases, a lot of photographs. Um, but Frederick Beauville, there was nothing about. There was no archive material. So Mike Lee said to me in the end, you're going to have to create your own history. He said... You know, because there isn't one and you've got to have one because you've got to be able to rely on it if we have these big improvisations, which Mike Lee was, you know, bases his work on. He does improvisations and then he films the um, distillation of the improvisations. He, that's how he works. It's a very time and money intensive um, occupation. So I had to create my own um, world for Frederick mm -hmm. Boville. So I decided that he lived in Dorking. Uh, and uh, I don't know why, but I went down to Dorking and I spent a Sunday in Dorking and I went to a church service in Dorking and I wandered up and down the high street and I looked around the back streets and I, you know, did, did the idea of, I worked out what the demographic was in Dorking and, uh, and, 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 and therefore, um, 
So I created my own world. So I knew that it was possible to travel up to London by train and that that's how much it would cost. So you had to have a certain amount. Anyway, all this stuff. And of course, it stood me in very good stead in that I was then able to um, create my own world of this man. Uh, it may have been imaginary in an otherwise largely real world. But by the end of it, I, I had a character that when I was required to do these very involved in, improvisations that Mike Lee relied upon, I had my own character to call on. Interestingly, and I'm going to let you interrupt in a moment, <laughs> I must just add a coda. Right at the end of the film, on the last day, we're just waiting to film, and the actor next to me... Vince Franklin, who's on telly all the time, wonderful comedic actor, who was playing a much better known individual in the Dorley Cart Opera Company, the great Rutland Barrington, who I knew everything about. <laughs> We're standing waiting to shoot. This is right at the end of a six-month gig. And Vince turns to me and he says, he says, yeah, it's funny, Simo. He said, uh, Beauville. He said, interesting name. He said, um, it's interesting because uh, Rutland Barrington's um, bank manager was called Beauville. <laughs> I said, well, thanks for telling me on the last day. So I hurry off and I, 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 I do a bit of research on, and I ask him a bit more about it. It turns out that, Frederick, that, that Rutland Barrington's bank manager was a Mr. Twining of Twining's Tea. They used to also run banks. Hang on in there, it gets easier in a minute. And there was a Twinings Bank right next to the um, Strand Theatre, uh, to the Savoy Theatre, where the operas were on. And I got in touch with Twinings, to still do the tea, and I got a letter back from the, uh, the descendant of the great Twining, who still runs Twinings Tea. He sent me a lovely letter. I'd enclosed a photograph of Frederick Beauville, the only photograph there is of him. And he sent me back a photograph of his ancestor from that period, and they were the spitting image. <laughs> and suddenly I realised that that's probably what happened, is that he was, he got into the Dorley Cart Opera Company by way of the fact that one of the stars of the company used his bank, and he, it was probably his brother or his cousin. Wow. See, what, I'm, what I'm struck by is that you start at the beginning of your story, you had to use your imagination. And I'm interested in the parallels between psychologists and actors, and if you like the differences as well as the similarities. And here's the similarity. We have to use our imagination because we have to imagine what it's like to be in a patient's shoes. And part of the training with good training institutions, you have to be a patient yourself really before you qualify. So I'm, I'm really interested in that. Here you had to be very imaginative and you know, make up this whole Dorking story. <laughs> So it's great. The whole, uh, I mean, empathy is a very big deal for uh, clinical psychologists and all psychotherapists. And there's an interesting thing happened recently, which uh, has got a lot to do with empathy, in that I heard Brian Cox being interviewed on the radio and someone put it to him that there's an idea going round that only actors who've been through a particular experience should be allowed, really, in a way to play that experience. Mm. Now, Brian Cox's reaction, you can imagine, was on Radio 4 this was he said bollocks mm. and in, in a way I mean if that was true that you could only play what you had been through or you could only work with clients that um, you had had very similar experiences to well I mean empathy would go out the window wouldn't well, it there it would. would be no imagination no and what's your take on well that? it's a very hot topic at the moment is it really? oh incredibly hot topic in the acting game because 
um, you know, in line with, uh, you know, the general trend really in these things. Um, the, the, the idea now is that, um, you know, should you, should you play gay characters if you are, are not yourself gay when there are so many wonderful gay and bisexual actors about? Sure. Uh, you know, um, should you play a transgender part if you are not transgender mm -hmm. yourself? Should you play somebody who's disabled if you're not disabled yourself? Right. Um, you know, uh, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, but, you know, even five or ten years ago, this was not a conversation that people were having. Our point is to act, surely, yeah. to be what you're not. Yeah, that's right. But, of course, I suppose if you are a disabled actor yeah. and you see a... A, an able-bodied actor playing a disabled actor when there are so few parts for you anyway you might quite rightly yeah, say yeah, yeah, can you give us a break yeah, sure yeah, you sure, know why not go, sure. off, go off that, that's the yeah. argument isn't that's it? the yeah. argument yeah. Yeah. and it's a it's a good argument uh so i think there's been a very necessary transition in that idea of um you know that 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 people should that that people should uh that, that people who, who have a, a more immediate connection with a particular set of circumstances of any character should be at the front of the queue. Well, yeah, but yeah, of I course, can see, I can appreciate that. I'm not quite you, sure that's what I'm getting at. Well, um, and I've got you know, absolute uh, sympathy for that point of view. But I'll, I'll take you back again. I mean, uh, in acting anyway, I mean, there will be things that you play that nobody's ever played. We're back, back to kind of the Martians or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. And again, it, that's you don't want to decry the power of imagination, do you? No, you, you know? don't. <clears throat> you, you don't. And it's, it's very important. And I, I think that, you know, generally as regards that, uh, as, as regards this, this general shift, this general trend at the moment towards, you know, unless you have immediate experience of the part, you shouldn't really, you know, unless you're well, unless you're Welsh, you shouldn't be playing a Welshman. Um, it's it, it's it it is undoubtedly, uh, I think, stifling that what I call that creative imagine imagination that all actors feed on. It's rather like the idea that some people would say, unless you have suffered with say alcohol dependency, you should not treat patients who are complaining of alcoholism or something like that. Exactly. And, and, and I don't think that that is true. You don't, you don't think that's true? No. It's different. You see, it's, I completely, that argument you've given for the disabled, I, I accept, and I think it's a very powerful argument, I accept that. I don't think you have to have had, say, a psychotic breakdown to be a good psychologist. Interestingly, in some African tribes, that's the way it works. Uh, I do think that as part of our training, you do need to be in touch with yourself. You need to know, you know, what your character's made up, what your personality's made up of, but I don't think you actually have to have had trauma, say, to be a good therapist. No, that's interesting. I mean, because, of course, in your in your profession, uh, you, you have the same dilemma, don't you, is that people are coming through the door with a range of things that they need to Absolutely. have evaluated, some of which will strike you very keenly, uh -huh. and mm -hmm. some of which you will have no experience of at all. Oh, I remember, right. you know, I had, I had therapy for several years, about 15, 20 years ago, and, uh, you know, the wonderful therapist, I won't mention her name, but she lives quite near where we're into recording this thing, and, you know, she was great, but understandably kept that barrier, you know, the professional barrier, very. but I remember on just a couple of occasions I would talk about things that, some of which seemed quite anodyne to me, mm. but she would suddenly well up. Yeah. It mm. was as if I'd... I, I'd touched on something 
which she felt so keenly herself that she was not, you know, that she took a few minutes to, or a few moments to keep that, to keep the professional barrier going. Mm. It was like I just, mm. unintentionally, just launched through her professional mm -hmm. uh, carapace. And how did that affect you, if at all? Well, it... it, it Obviously, when you when you are with a a therapist and you suddenly see them, albeit momentarily, become a person. I don't mean that unkindly, like they're robotic, but they are very much there as somebody that will reflect back to you. You know, blank screen. Yeah, blank screen. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you ask them something, well, how do you feel about it? They will say, or what's your, you know. So you don't really, and of course, you know, as a as a. I'm sure I don't have to tell you this, is that, that when you're in therapy, or I, I, when I was in therapy anyway, you are, <laughs> particularly as I'm an actor, of course, you are, you are very aware, you are desperate to get some idea of their private life. <laughs> so I would be talking to, you know, let's call her Anne. I'd be talking to Anne, you know, and occasionally I'd hear a kettle being boiled in the next room. And I'd think, oh, there's somebody else here. Oh, I thought you were going to say that you wanted an applause at the end of every <laughs> session. <laughs> I always want applause. But I mean, you know, you go through all those things, you know, if you think, oh, you know, does, you know, does, oh, does, uh, does she find me quite attractive? <laughs> all these things, you know. And, oh, there's a kettle being boiled. And then once I heard a dog. Mm -hmm. And once I turned up and Anne was palpably still recovering from the session before me. Mm -hmm. She had, you know, she was very... You know, she was reaching for the tissues and trying to pretend it was a cold. But obviously, you know, she'd had a very thorough session before me. I, I, I must... Uh, sorry, I don't... This takes me to something else that might be of interest to our discussion. Is that uh, in the summer of 1982... It's just come to me. In the summer of 1982, uh, my dad had a stroke. And I was at Bristol Old Vic at the time. And my, I'd, never, I'd never suffered personal loss and um, my mum rang and said no don't don't worry Mikey but dad's had a stroke and he's in Brighton General Hospital and you know don't come home come home at the weekend so I went home at the weekend and I went to see my dad and I went to see him for the next couple of weeks three or four weeks I'd come home every Sunday and on about the third or fourth visit I'd always go in on the Sunday afternoon it was a roasting hot high summer and by then, Dad wasn't really making sense. He was trying to say stuff to me, but I couldn't, you know, it was a struggle to make out what he was saying. So I was trying to sort of busk it with him. And I left him one afternoon and uh, somebody came up to me, seemingly wearing a nurse's outfit. And she said to me, are you Mr. Simpkins? And I said, yeah. She said, you have to prepare your mother for the fact that your father is going to die. And I was so horrified by what she said that I thought for a moment, this is the sort of madness you have when you're in shock, is that she, perhaps she was a cleaner who was needed reporting, that was a, a sort of cleaner who was trying to meddle with, with people in the ward. You know, like sometimes you get the people who come up and say, oh yeah, and you think. And of course, then I, I drove down to Brighton Seafront and I realised that she wasn't a cleaner. She was the... the nurse staff nurse you know she was completely she was trying to say to me your your dad isn't going to make it and you have to start preparing for this and I sat on the beach and 
I was overwhelmed with grief and I was crying my eyes out on the beach by myself. This was before I went home to report this to mum. And as I was in the middle of my extremis, a part of me said, I can remember it now, a part of me, my mind said, ah, now, this is what it's like. What it, now, this is what you're doing with your hand. You're rubbing it back and forth across your forehead. This is what it this is what you do when you when you do Mikey this voice in my head was saying to me when you are in grief lock this away because this is going to be great for a play one day. <laughs> and then a third part of me said what are you like yeah sure. you are you've had the worst news of your life your dad is going to die and but that's yet, how you're coping and it? yet and you're, but but there were, but this this second voice that was saying this is what you do and this is a great trick, Mike. This is what men do. They rub their head back and forth. Use this. This is going to be great. I mean, it was like so cold and calculating. The actor side of me storing this experience already, as even as I was experiencing, saying, "Yeah, there's one for your locker." And of course, later on, I did play a part where I was coping with the, uh, this, and I remember using this thing. And I, it still sends a chill into my heart that in the middle of my most, my most vulnerable moment in my life to date, I still had this sort of cold, clinical sense of, ah, yeah. But you've touched on something that I feel passionate about, and that is that it's so important for us as human beings to integrate both the things that we like about ourselves and the things perhaps we're less fond of and that you know in Jungian terms you will split that off and make it your shadow and you will be you know what people see is your persona but really the whole of you is the shadow plus the face and in that situation the way you've just described the story you have integrated you brought together that part of you that says you know I'm not particularly proud of that there's a part of me that was coping with this grief by you know thinking about acting and how I could use those uh, behavioural signs uh, and yet the fact that you could tell us this story shows that you're not in denial about it that you've brought it back in and that's well I think part of the that's what <laughs> therapy is about is being integrated and knowing you know what your strengths are what your if you like weaknesses are what your vulnerabilities are that's a yeah. better word your vulnerabilities and living less uncomfortably with them not say drinking them out or irrigating them <laughs> yeah, <laughs> trying to drown them but irrigating yeah, it's, it's, a very, it's a very powerful story. But I remember also Anne, the therapist, saying to me at one point, she said, you're very entertaining, aren't you? <laughs> and I thought, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's and got, and well, she said... Probably a pretty useful... Pretty useful <laughs> attribute for an actor. Really. Yeah, it's but, not, but not. <laughs> her point was, it's not a useful attribute when you're trying to have therapy. Yeah, no, sure. No. My sure. therapist once said to me, "Me think he doth complain too much." <laughs> <laughs> Can I uh, ask you about another aspect of acting, and that's about memory? Because I must admit, I heard you on the radio last Sunday. Uh, I've just let the listeners know what's going on here. So. In the unfriend, which we've talked about, Michael has to appear on stage towards the end, uh, where he's actually dead. Um, we don't know he's dead till the very end when Miss Shearsmith pushes him over, um, but he has to sit for a very long time, 
perfectly still, but in an upright position. And Michael on, on the radio last Sunday uh, told uh, Paddy O'Connell how he did this, which was by learning poetry. Uh, just tell us a bit more. Well, maybe I've told everyone <laughs> everything, but just tell us a bit about that. No, I, I, I mean, it, well, I mean, I decided I had to spend about 12 or 15 minutes completely stock still yeah, on stage yeah. every night, yeah. twice on Saturdays and Thursdays. And uh, and it was very important that my eye line didn't waver because that would suggest that I could I was aware of what was going on around me. So it was, you know, it could be a problem, not only concentration, but obviously when you when you do 107 shows and inevitably boredom can be a, yeah. an issue. You know. <laughs> So you, it's easy to start looking at the audience, and so I was determined, you know, to do my best because the whole uh, climax of the play resulted it, w w relied on the fact the audience didn't know what this guy was doing there. So I decided that the best way, rather than just sort of, you know, count the seconds, uh, was to try and find a displacement activity. And so I decided to try and learn a poem a week in my head. I didn't mouth it or even, but uh, you know. And then on the final. Uh, day of each week I would try and recite the poem in my head as I was sitting there stock still and see if I could remember it but it, it also fulfilled another function is that you know I'm 66 now and uh, it is an inevitable consequence of all actors that eventually their memory starts to let them down and um, you know I've, I've been on stage with actors who have not been able to look in the mirror and admit what's happening to them. I mean, it's not it's not a it's not a like a switch being flicked. People who, when they're younger, could do Hamlet suddenly find that they can't manage as much. It's not like I can't now remember a line, but they have to be, as actors, we have to be realistic about what we can manage. And um, uh, I've had enough experience of of you know in some cases very famous actors I've worked with who have not been able to stare themselves down and realise that it's time to start. Uh, cutting their cloth to, coat to fit their cloth, you know, uh, and I'm determined not to do that. But one of the ways that obviously one can keep uh, uh, your memory sharp uh, is by trying to learn, you know, trying to learn poetry. And I, I found it, I found it very useful because um, certainly as a stage actor, it's not so essential on screen, but as a stage actor, uh, the, 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 the world of the stage is no place for somebody that has memory issues. Right, it's, absolutely. It's a yeah. hostile and sure. alien environment. Sure. And you, you, you've actually, <clears throat> so you, you're saying quite clearly that, I, well, to put it in very simple terms, it's either use it or lose it, really, aren't you? You're saying by keep, keep practising with yeah. your memory, that's keeping it. I, I believe, I, I right. believe it, right. I, I, uh, well, I think we discussed this informally, Peter, is that you, you can't change, you know, you can't change a profound trend, but you can certainly help to keep your memory clear by using it. If you're suffering with a neurodegenerative illness, it's very, very difficult, clearly, and, and learning poems is not going to really retard the, 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 the course of the illness. But yeah. uh, use it or lose it is a pretty good line for most of us who are not suffering with illnesses, yeah, yeah, and that's what I, you know, that's what I try to do, uh, and also, of course, yeah, I mean, the other good thing about being on stage is that you know it is it's hard work as you get older. It really is hard work, but um, uh, it, it is you know it is a it is a constant daily workout. 
Uh, and one of the problems of doing teleparts is that, you know, because it's, it's a wonderful thing to do, but unless you're playing the lead, it's a very bitty profession. Sure. You know, you're, 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 you're needed perhaps Tuesday, then perhaps a week Friday and perhaps two weeks Monday. You turn up, you don't really know anybody on the crew or, you know, and you sit in your little trailer or your caravan or in the waiting room. You have too much to eat. You have a big fried breakfast. The, the, <laughs> the heating's always on in your trailer, even if it's 80 degrees outside. So you fall into a stupor uh, and then suddenly, you know, you're shaken from it and somebody says they're ready for you now, Michael. And you, it's probably been five hours since you arrived on the location. You, know, you go on and you've got five or six lines. It's, 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 it's not easy to keep your mind sharp in those circumstances, whereas theatre you have to because you can't do it there's a whole discussion isn't there about the group dynamics of working in a cast and with the backstage people and working as a team which you don't get presumably when you're but I also think I mean I'd be interested on your thoughts you know the the other wonderful thing about being a stage particularly a stage actor but also telly if you if the part's good enough is that it is a very tribal and very convivial uh, collegiate atmosphere uh-huh. uh, and I think that's very very important for mental health as well and I mean what what are, what are your thoughts I mean do you I mean obviously isolation and solitude must be a, a big factor in per people's well, mental health. No, a lot of therapists work in very isolated ways um, and we know that if they do like they're seeing you know client after client after client as it were uh, maybe having only limited supervision if there's not something built in where they are having informal contact with people in the same game, they can burn out much more, much more quickly. Is that, is that yeah. the case? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's quite, it's quite, you know, when you're with other actors, I'm sure you talk about acting a lot and, and what's going on, but you have gossip, don't you? And like anecdotes and people talk about their different hobbies and their families and so on. But a, a therapist can get very isolated from that. Uh, especially if they're like in private practice or you know single-handed practice, unless they find an outlet for that, they can burn out very quickly. Yeah. You know? Well, on, certainly on stage, you know, you're, the, the the actors you're with. I mean, the, I'm not suggesting it's like trying to scale Everest, but you know, you are completely dependent. You are dependent on each other, yeah, both yeah. on stage and off. Sure. And uh, a company can become intensely tribal. I mean. The cast of the unfriend that I've been with for six months now, you know, by the end, the the bond is absolute, and and even one's partners or loved ones who come into the theatre, you know, perhaps between shows to have a cup of tea or, you know, they can often feel very, uh, very left uh, out. Left out, exactly so, because they're actually entering an intensely private and tribal world where the only people that can really uh, experience it are the people who are going through it night after night, night after night. Uh, but what's also interesting is that within days of the job ending, <laughs> the tribe tribe disperses. It's just shattered. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. I've learned from bitter experience that on the last night of a long run of a play, particularly if it's one that I, that is I've really enjoyed, I always try to leave the part, the last night party early, right. because the moment that curtain is down, the whole raison d'etre of you all being together is gone. Yeah. There's nothing to talk about other than oh, wasn't that good? Yeah. And I found. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons Stephen Moffat didn't get a chance to say to goodbye to me after the unfriend last night is that I, I tend to clear off because it's like prolonging a corpse. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mindful of time, um, just one quick question again, Michael. We were talking earlier about 
um, you know, how you get into roles and how you keep the boundary between your personal life and then that actor. And we were talking about some film actors we know uh, will stay using that accent throughout the, um, the time of the, the, of the shooting <clears> of the film. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? About I mean, are you the kind of person who, who makes that, that break? And it, you know, there's Michael and then there's Michael in a particular part? Well, obviously, I try to because one's <clears throat> one's personal sanity relies on uh, uh, not becoming so involved that the that the two worlds merge. But it, I don't. I'm not always uh, successful in it, as my long suffering wife will tell you. You know, there are there are instances where parts of. Um, I mean, you know, I don't want to overstate it because I've never played a part that has completely overwhelmed me in a way that with some people it has to. Otherwise, they. They can't um, do it. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I don't know about this, but I'm thinking of, you know, some of the great modern parts. I'm thinking perhaps of somebody like uh, Mark Rylance in, Jer in um, Jerusalem, uh, you know, which was, you know, this extraordinary tour de force. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, actually, because, you know, it's, it's usual with actors that you, if you go and see a friend in a show you will perhaps pop around and see them afterwards, albeit briefly, and we all know what the game is, that they've got limited time and they might have another performance. But um, I remember when I, I don't know Mark that well, but I was, at, I was at drama school with him and he got me the ticket, which was lovely. But when I went to see Jerusalem, which is this sort of three-hour tour de force by Mark, extraordinary performance, and I, I said to him afterwards, I just dropped a line saying, you know, can I just pop around and see you? And Mark, quite rightly, just texted back, no, Mike, I don't see anybody after the show. And I right. thought, yeah, quite right too, um, because I think he, you'd, I think when you're playing a part like that, at least you need some time to decompress, sure, really. Sure. And certainly in parts I've played, I have sometimes, you know, if I'm playing an angry man, I can become a bit more angry at home. Or um, and Julia's noticed this, my wife, and uh, you know, to an extent, it happens with her as well. So there is a certain amount of a bleed through, but you have to try and. Um, and 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 keep a keep a check on that because uh, so, so important for therapists too. The last thing we want keep to that do is boundary. keep the boundary. And that can't be easy, I would imagine, with yes. your profession either, can it? It's something you can learn. So and it's some something that yeah can evolve over time. But you've got to be conscious of it. You've got to you've got to make it happen. And how and do I you think having other interests is yeah really yeah yeah. It's and I mean, I know, you know, I know perhaps you don't want to answer this, but uh, you know, as somebody that's had therapy, what? How do you cope when? when perhaps the therapy doesn't work or goes wrong or you hear three months later that, you know, something terrible has, has happened to a person that inevitably you've become intensely connected with. How do you cope with that? The first uh, answer to that is that we should all have supervision. Absolutely. That's the, that you've just given the reason for having supervision. So you take your difficulties and your challenges to the supervisor who's monitoring the, the work, and that's the first thing. Second thing, you have, I think you also need to have a very rich life outside of your work. I, but and I put that in simple terms that it's good to work hard at something other than your work. Yeah. yeah you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you've got to you know, be absorbed in something else. I don't mean just distracting or no, but. You know, we go to the theatre a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get, I'm in the theatre a lot. Thank so. goodness. Yeah. <laughs> now that we do have to finish soon, so can I, it's been absolutely fascinating and thank you so much. It, it's been, we could talk all day. I've enjoyed it. Good. One last question then. What's been your favourite role? Well, look, I grew up in a, I grew up in a, 
what I call a showbiz family, not a showbiz family, but my dad played the tenor sax. Um, my he was a bit of a dasher my dad a bit like ronald coleman you know he's had a, had a bit of a way with the ladies and uh i you know i grew up all my childhood was spent in pubs and bars watching him play the tenor sax and i grew up in jazz and the great american songbook and my brother is, a, is one of britain's finest jazz alto sax players and my other brother is a very decent semi-pro player so i was steeped in what i call the great american songbook that's right. really what i you know, and and also in British TV and all that. So look, you get asked to do the musical Chicago. Uh-huh. So you're on the you're in the West End. You're you're, in, you're dressed in a tux. You've got two spotlights following you everywhere you go on stage, and you're sitting down singing a song. You've got a live band behind you swinging like a, like a barn door. <clears throat> And you've got Lee Zimmerman in fishnets on one knee. <laughs> and you've got Denise Van Outen in fishnets on the other knee. And as I say to people, it's a dirty job, but somebody's... <laughs> uh, Michael, thanks so much. Oh, yeah, thanks, Thank Michael. you so much That's for coming. Great. Thank you. Well, I don't know about you, Peter, but I really enjoyed that. Stuart, it was a great afternoon. And thanks again to uh, Michael for joining us. I thought he was entertaining, engaging, and it was great. And I want to thank the listeners too for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. Yes, yes, thanks. And please um, look out for further episodes of The Psychology of Almost Everything. And we'll be back on the airwaves again soon. Uh, But for now, goodbye and take care. Thank you very much.